The following is a message from Reverend Ken Belden of Wellsprings Congregation. So our message series, How to Be Happy, concludes today, the fifth of five parts. And it might seem odd to you a little bit to end this message series with something as prosaic as work. Why not love? Why not relationships? Why not family? Why not beauty? Why not arts? Well, we've sort of done all those things before, but actually I'm ending with work very intentionally. It's because we, especially around here, especially in Chester County, we're a work-obsessed society. What's the first question very often we ask someone when we meet them for the first time? You tell me. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? Not how do you do, or who are you, what do you do? Sometimes with that pointing finger. So you know what? I think that work is actually the elephant in our happiness room. That unless we attend to the question of work and the relationship between work and happiness, we're not going to really understand what happiness actually is. But also this morning, I'm going to define work broadly. Not just what you do as a job, but as a reflection of your deeper essence as a person. Not just a matter of economic necessity or financial need, although it is that for many of us, obviously. But because work keeps before us questions of ultimate concern. About who we really are and how we're spending our life and who we're spending our life with and what matters to us most. See, the word vocation, some of you know this already, the word vocation comes from the Latin word voce, voice. So we're asking someone, what do you do? We're actually just getting a very narrow band of what it is to actually work for a living, whether you get paid for it or not. What we're talking about when we talk about work and happiness and meaning, we're talking about finding your voice, helping you find your true voice. See, if we can learn to work happily, learn to work and flourish, that might be the most challenging thing for any of us here. And in the end, working happily or learning to work with a deep sense of happiness and purpose. It involves all those same gifts that happiness is involved with when we talk about love or when we talk about friendship. We talk about all those things that we think are the most important things and work is down here, a little bit lower. But to find work today, not just as what you do to get for a living, not just what you get paid for, but in the broader sense of where we place our hands in active engagement with life most of our lives. Now let's go back to just the foundational thing that's really very eloquent and very simple. Tal Ben-Shahar's definition of happiness. He said it is the ability to experience pleasure and purpose. The ability to enjoy life and also find meaning in it. Too often we collapse happiness into, did you happy today? Is the question, did you have a pleasurable day? That's only part of the journey. Happiness is pleasure and purpose experienced together in life. And I want to tell you the story of a friend of mine no longer with us. He's a friend who I'll be remembering next week. His name is Joe Miller, and he didn't work professionally, last, not, at least not during the time that I knew him. Joe lived from the years about 1983-1984 till his death in 1998. I knew him at the church that ordained me to ministry in New York City. He lived with full-blown AIDS. Not HIV positive, full-blown AIDS for 14-15 years. If you remember the history of the plague, this is before... AZT even, in the early years. This is before triple cocktail. This is before protease inhibitors. Joe was not supposed to live for almost a decade and a half after he developed full-blown AIDS. He never stopped having full-blown AIDS the entire time that I knew him. 
Now, in his professional life that he had to give up when he became sick, he was a teacher. I saw him preach once at the congregation that ordained the All Souls in New York. He said this. He said, you know that line that hangs ominously over the inferno that Dante wrote? Remember your Latin? Remember your classics? Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Invitation to hell. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Now Joe took that and he turned it on its head. He said, that was a blessing and not a curse. See, because the kind of life that Joe had to live was that if he was going to hope, hold out hope every day for a cure for his own life, he would be wasting his life. He said that the minute he actually accepted the fact that his life, he was living on borrowed time, it wasn't a matter of him hoping, hoping, hoping for that cure someday. He would be wasting his life. It actually was a blessing to give up that kind of hope. The blessing he also received is that it liberated him to share in every single day that he had on this earth to work for the health, the welfare, the well-being of others. Joe, and I mean, he was maybe the entire time I knew him, he ranged between maybe 98 pounds and 88 pounds. He was rail thin, and he looked sick. He was sick. But he was always going to meet with doctors, not just for himself. He was always going to meet with politicians. He was always being flown to this pharmaceutical company, one or the other, because his life served as advocacy for all those who would follow after him, all those who would follow after him, and be able to live with the disease, even as he was dying from it. Even as he was dying from it. See, Joe was often happy. It's amazing. Someone who lived 15 years with full-blown AIDS, he smoked about a pack and a half of cigarettes every day. It's not what his doctor would recommend for him, but I think it was sort of like saying, you know what, I'm going to be taken pretty soon anyway. I'm going to enjoy myself a little bit. And his life had such profound purpose. A life spent fulfilling his sense of calling by living for others. He was happy. He lived a happy life. And what I believe is that every single day when he lived on that borrowed time, when doctors said, and it looked that he could drop dead at any moment, and he came really close in those 15 years, still he was able to come back and come back and come back. Sometimes what having a calling, a sense of true, noble purpose in life can do for us. I think one of the other reasons that Joe was really happy, and he smiled often. You wouldn't think it if you looked at him from afar. You'd say, that person's sick. He's dying. But Joe was often happy because he knew this, that very often in our society, dying, the dying, they're over there. We want to keep them out of sight. You know, healthy people over here, the living over here, the dying over there. But Joe was in the very midst of life every single day that he lived for all those 15 years. He didn't have time to waste. He didn't have time to kill time was going to kill him. Instead, he had time to fill every single day that I knew him. He knew the the truth of Shawshank Redemption. I've never read the book, the Stephen King version, but I know the movie, which I think is better for what people tell me. What's the phrase in it? Get busy busy living or you get busy dying. Get busy living or you get busy dying. Every day that I knew Joe, he was busy living fully. See, Joe had very clear goals, a very clear orientation for what he wanted his life to be, even if it wasn't what he wanted his life to be when he was growing up. Now, the issue of goals, especially here in a place like North Central Chester County, a lot of, yes, word they call it, strivers, it's very achievement-based part of the world. 
Driven by this achievement, goals can be a blessing or they can be a curse. And it depends upon how we look on those goals and what goals that we hold. So we've got to be really careful with our goals. Like Emerson said, be careful what you worship for what you worship you will become. Is exactly the same thing with our goals in our lives. If, if we relate to our goals in the right way, they will be a blessing. In the wrong way, it could be a curse. Now some of you know the old chestnut of spiritual discernment, Zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance. Remember that one? Now, Robert Persig is the guy who wrote it, and he tells a story when he was just sort of beginning his spiritual quest about hiking in the Himalayas with a bunch of Buddhist monks. And he was the youngest and most vital guy in the group, and he thought, I'll sweat. I can make it to the top of the mountain. But the problem was that he crapped out the most early. He's the only one who didn't make it to the summit of the mountain. He could not make it to the top. And the reason was this, is that as they started to trek up and up and up and up, he kept looking up and up and up and up. So all he did was judge his step to where he was relative to the goal that he wanted to reach. It was like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? He didn't have the kind of clean burning fuel to be able to move him onward. The monks, however, some of these aged old guys, all of them made it to the top. All of them made it to the top because what they did is they would look at the sun of the mountain. Okay, we've got the right heading got the right orientation, and then immediately, you know what? Back to the steps. Back to what was just right in front of them. Now, Tal Ben-Shahar talks about this as a distinct difference in what goals can mean. One is the idea of goals as a reward, something that we're owed, and the other idea is goals as a basic orientation in life. See, Persig, when he was writing the book before he had come to awakening and awareness, he judged the end as the victory, and everything that led up to it as less than victory. But for the monks, it was more a matter of having a compass. You know a compass. It's not a map. A compass just tells you that you're headed in the right direction. That's what they had. They could see the apex of the mountain. They walked toward it and said, no big deal. One step after another, after another, after another. And this is sort of like a Buddhist phrase that I really like and actually really remember when I'm sitting here trying to compose my messages sometimes on Thursday or Friday and, you know, it's just not coming. It's just not flowing. I'm saying... When I get to the end of this, then. (laughs) When I get to the end of this, then I can go out and play. When I get to the end of this, then I can go out and have fun. I think of this phrase. You are entitled to the work, not the reward. You are entitled to the work, not the reward. Now maybe you hear that and that sounds awfully puritanical to you. Rewards. I like rewards. I like to go out to play. I like the candy. I like the money. Well... Viewing work in this way, entitled to the work, not the reward. You know what becomes the play and the candy and the money? The work itself. Not having to race ahead to get to the end and saying, aha, look at this product I have. Aren't I so good? And entitled to the work, not the reward. That's when our goals can be a curse to us, when we see only the end. There's a phrase I heard many years ago, and I think it's really good. You don't sing a song to get to the end of the song. You sing the song to sing the song. You live the life to live the life. Because, you know, all that racing, where are you going? We know the ultimate end point. We can hope that maybe there's something beyond it, but we know really what happens here. Where's all that racing toward? Where's it going? And unfortunately, some of us get these really unhealthy definitions, understanding of goals, really early in life. We get them in education. I think actually our kids these days are even more at risk of having the sense of it's just about the goal, it's just about the victory, it's just about the end, than even I was just 15, 20 years ago when I was in school. 
We call it, you know, teaching to the test. You hear that phrase? Because, you know, the test and standardized testing has become all the rage in educational accountability. But you know what? What an unfortunate thing for the teachers and what a horrible thing for the students. Because that doesn't teach you, when you're teaching to the test, learning to learn. It doesn't teach you teaching to teach. It doesn't teach you growing to grow. Some of our myths in the Western world, unfortunately, they're just a part of this idea that work is just to get to the end point and struggle through it. It goes all the way back to that mythological exile from Eden. Adam and Eve, if you remember the story, what's one of their punishments when they're exiled? You're going to struggle while you work. You're going to struggle while you work. What a damaged and damaging way, I think, to understand what most of us spend a lot of our lives doing. And there's echoes of this to the very day. We get good grades to get into the right college. Get into the right college to get a good job. Get a good job to get a nice house. Get a nice house to have a nice comfortable living. Have a nice comfortable living so maybe you can attract the right mate. Etc, etc, etc. To get, to get, to get, to get. Step and step and step and step. Always with the great things always in front of us. Dangling like that carrot there. Problem is that in the risk of all this to getting, and none of those things are bad things. Not the least. Some of them are very good things. The problem with that orientation to goals, to get, to get, to get, is that we might forget. We might forget who we are and why we are striving and why we are doing all those things in the first place. And that's why too often we can experience, we get some of those things that we want and we ask, is that all there is? When we have that kind of orientation with our goals, unfortunately that's the attitude that we build in ourselves. But goals are a blessing, like the monks who ascended the mountain. And goals are a blessing, like with my friend Joe, when they give us a basic orientation to every day that we live, every day that we might learn something new, every day that we are blessed with work, paid or unpaid, in the home, in the workplace, wherever it is, goals are a blessing in that way when they give us the compass. The compass that lets us know we are heading in the right direction and the journey itself is blessed, not just about arriving, not just about arriving. That's what a calling is. Whether it's work or love, family or friendship, wherever you experience the calling, that's what a calling is, because a calling is not about racing ahead to the end. The calling is about saying the goal is to become the living embodiment of what we love and to make progress in the direction of it. I'll repeat that. A calling is to make the goal to be the living embodiment of what we love, what we value, and to make progress always in that direction. One step at a time. One day at a time. One piece of learning at a time. Not hurrying, but learning to walk. Any of you ever done walking meditation? You know, so often there's this image of, you know, got to do meditation here. This is meditation. Well, yes, in a way, but you know what? This can be meditation as well. Just taking our time in the time that we're given. One day at a time, one step at a time. Now, there's a psychologist named Amy Riznewski. I'm not even going to attempt to spell that for you. She talks about three different ways that we can understand our professional lives if we do you know, work outside the home, or perhaps I think even this applies to those who work at home as well. Calling, career, and job. Traditionally, this up here, what I do, this is a calling. Big C. Now, one of the reasons, actually, I don't dress like your typical preacher 
It's because I think a calling is something we all can have. I want to wear the regular clothes. If you notice, this is the first day I've not worn a collared shirt in the pulpit. Woo! Radical. You can have a calling in so many avenues and venues in life. It is not just about the traditional sense of preacher, doctor, lawyer. Parenting, loving another person, caring for another person, doing a kind of job that isn't normally associated with the calling. Those can be a deep sense in which you become every day the things that you love. That defines a calling. Now, having a job or a career, the difference between a job and career is that a job is like those people who when they win the lottery, sometimes you're going to quit your job, they say yes immediately. That's a person who has a job. No intrinsic value, just for the paycheck, no big deal, huh? Now, having a career, that's a little bit different. In a career, we do strive and we do get some internal reward, but most often in a career, it is about the next step. It is about getting, you know, that next promotion, about getting that next raise, about going to management level and leaving those, quote-unquote, down below. Now, a job or a career, there's nothing absolutely wrong with either of those things, especially in the psychological literature. But I want to encourage you, and you know you are a professional and you're working lives better than I do, so I'm going to ask you, and actually that's one of the questions in today's questions for reflection. What is your professional life? What is your job, your work? Is it a career, a calling, or a job itself? But if it is a job, and if it is a job or a career, I want to ask you to just be a little bit wary. A little bit wary. Some of you might know this, if you guys can see it very clearly, from our listening to our lives, our Wellsprings 2.0, it's what we call the ministry box. It's a tool for discernment. And what you'll see at the top is there's good at and not good at, and a lot around the side at like and don't like. And what you do is you fill in these boxes with these four quadrants answering the question. I'll do it for myself. I am not good at and I don't like, sorry, Teresa, balancing my checkbook. She knows this. I won't give you any more of those. I am good at, but don't like, talking on the phone. I have to talk on the phone a lot in this job. I was a pollster. Not a telemarketer, but a pollster in college. I was pretty good at it. I met my quota every single day I did it. But I don't like it. I don't like talking to people when I can't see them face to face. So I'm good at it, but I don't like it. Not good at it, and like Oh, what was this? Oh, much. Uh, singing. That's why I'm not like John turns down my mic while the rest of you are singing. And that's why you have the good people up there. The good people are, you know, as I hope, the people who are good at it like singing. Because it gives them joy. Let us flourish. Now, these four quadrants are each associated with different sort of spiritual states of being. If you spend the majority of your life doing things you are not good at and don't like, the Latin word for depression is literally like, like Jagger sung, sung about, under my thumb. You are on, you know, you're being ground down. The majority of your life is spent living in that quadrant of doing things you're not good at and don't like. If you're doing things that you're good at and don't like, I'm going to return here in a second, so I'm going to hold that one. Number three, things you are not good at and like, well, that can be really scary. But I think that's also where many of us experience the greatest growth in our life. Because we get to go into, into a greater sense of confidence the things that we really want to do, but maybe don't give ourselves permission to do. Maybe don't give ourselves permission to do. If I want to take voice lessons, I would grow there in quadrant number three. Maybe never enough to objectively move it over to number four. And number four is, as Joseph Campbell said, bliss. Doing the things you absolutely love. The stuff in number four, if it's a matter of your professional work life, well, that's a calling. That's a calling. I'm going to return to number two here, because I think it's the one that particularly a lot of people, a lot of us in this area are most at risk for. Things you are good at doing, but don't like doing. 
These are the things that you might receive a lot of pay for. These are the kinds of things that you might do because you believe you need to get to the next step. Now, that's just part of adult living. I need to know where my money is. So even if I'm not good at it and don't like it, I need to have some vague idea. Not just vague idea, but a good idea of where it's at. When we're doing things, though, that we're good at and don't like, we can appear from all aspects of our external appearance. Your life is going great. But internally, internally, if you don't like what you're doing, how do you feel? That quadrant is associated with probably the most damaging of all of the spiritual states of being. Despair. Despair, by its very definition, is hidden, isolated, kept away, kept out, not shown. It's that living from the outside in, not living by heart, not living inside out. And it is one of the most important, unfortunately, ingredients in Thoreau, our great prophet, in his recipe for what he called a life of quiet desperation. The life of quiet desperation when we do the majority of our things good at, but we really don't like doing them. Now, if you're one of those people, I'm not going to ask you to identify yourself. I hope you're not. But if you're one of those people that has really said, you know what, I am doing something professionally or with my working life that I'm good at and I don't like, you have to really set boundaries. You have to set very clear boundaries because I have to tell you, workplace misery, as you probably already know, it's a notoriously difficult animal to cage. (laughs) Workplace misery, say, okay, you can keep it at the job. But it wants to hop the fence out of the zoo and come home with us. It wants to follow us home and say, you know what? You're miserable there. You might start being miserable here as well, too. The question that Jesus asked, what does it profit us to gain the world but to lose our soul? Now, when I first heard this, when I started to think of that, ooh, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, the real big, awful, meaning, evil people of history, they gained the world in the sense of, at least for a time, gaining power. They certainly lost their soul if... You know, any of them even had it to begin with, who can tell? But I think it's actually a more subtle question. It's not about the giant world stage and those who write upon it in the blood of other people. I think it's a question offered to us. What is it to gain the world, to have success, but to feel that we have lost who we really are? For any of us, that is too great a price to pay. I must tell you, because this is our shot, (laughs) as we know it. Whatever would come next. After this life, resurrection, reincarnation, who knows, who knows? I don't know. But this is what we do know. And so to waste this life with this sense of, I'm profiting, but my soul is gone. This is something you need to pay attention to if this question you feel in any way you are answering yes to this morning. If you're working just for those extrinsic goals, those benefits some of which are very, very good things. And you know that you are. Well, that is a step in the right direction. Perhaps you're saying, I'm working this job, I'm working this profession, I'm doing this because I've known what it's like to be poor. I've known what dire poverty is like, and I cannot, will not go back there. I am keeping this job because it has such great benefits and insurance, and you know what? I need to care for my family. I need to make sure in case I get sick that I'll be cared for. I'm working so that my family doesn't have to experience what I experienced growing up. These are all good things. But you know what? This is the key. If you are making this bargain, if you are making this bargain, don't let the fact that your job is unsatisfactory to you follow you home. Because then that logic that you were using, I'm working so that I can have these other things, you're not getting those other things. 
You're not having that family life. You're not having that sense of peace outside of work. Be very clear that the reason you are working, if it's only a job, spend time, spend your energy, cultivate the habits of the heart that allow you to enjoy the things that you are working for. Even if your work is compromised, know that you can still spend time, energy on those things outside of work. But don't let work get so invasive. Now let's say, you know, you're in a job or you're in a career, and it's good, just maybe good enough. But you're saying, you know what, all this happiness stuff we've been hearing about, I'd like just a little bit more of that. I'd like just a little bit more of that in my professional life, in my working life. How can you do that? I'll start with an example that may surprise you a little bit. It's work that we may think doesn't have too much freedom of choice associated with it. Now there's a great book on management that if any of you are in any position of managing others, volunteers, your professional life. It's called First Break All the Rules. It's from a study that was taken from the Gallup organization from, I think, hundreds of thousands of managers all throughout the world. And First Break All the Rules gives an example of excellent housekeepers in a chain of corporate hotels. Now, what these excellent housekeepers do, and there is something that divides the good housekeepers from the fair housekeepers from the truly excellent housekeepers, is that these excellent housekeepers will not just walk into a room and say, you know what, okay, let's get it all together, let's gather as quickly as we can. The excellent housekeepers, you know what they do? They lie on the bed, and they survey the bed from the perspective of the people who will be staying in the hotel. Because you know when you're in a hotel, that's the position you are going to be in. And so they'll gain the perspective of looking around the room and saying, you know what, that is cleaning, or that is beautiful, or this can be brought up to speed. Because what they are doing is they are trying to shape that environment. It's not a matter of just throwing out the trash. It's a matter of saying space matters. And there's one particular story that I love about one truly excellent housekeeper in this chain of hotels. And what she would do is every single day that she would walk into a room and she could tell that a family was there. Those of you who have kids, especially younger kids, maybe this is what happened to you. You're all the four of you or five of you or six of you are stuck in a hotel room and you've got the whole phalanx of, uh, of stuffed animals with you as well, too. Now, this excellent housekeeper, you know what she does? She says, you know what, this family that's out for the day, they're probably out having an adventure. Maybe they're at you know, Disney or an amusement park or something like that. And what she does is she prepares, she sets the stage of those left behind stuffed animals in such a way that it looked like they were out having an adventure. At the same time, that the family was having the adventure. They, she left little handwritten notes next to Winnie the Pooh saying, I hope you had a great time out today because I did too. I had a big you know, vanilla fudge sundae. Think about the excellence and the thought in that. And think about how that transforms work that many of us might think of, and you know, sometimes it's class bias, you know, menial labor. But think about the significance of that kind of work and the thought put into that kind of work. It is the opposite of dehumanizing work. It is the opposite of dehumanizing the people who do that work. And it is an argument for the fact that especially as sometimes there's this real distance and pay disparity in our society that we can't afford to leave anyone behind. That everyone deserves a sense of being paid for labor that is worthwhile. Because you know what? Even a temporary bed with the right preparation and the right care can be made into a home. There is no insignificant work and there are no insignificant people. See, that's what happens when you have a goal where you work. If you're able to use your strengths to achieve those goals, freedom and imagination even a place seemingly as circumscribed as making up a room, they will reveal themselves to you when you transform your working life into a call. 
freedom will be yours. Now, in your most significant work, and I hope you know this, whether it is parenting or whether it's in a traditional office, what we call the most meaningful, the most significant work, what we experience is flow. You know that word? Flow. It's like Michael Jordan in the fourth quarter, sinking basket after basket after basket. And what does he say after the game? I don't know. I was just in the zone. That's flow. That's the experience of flow. We are one with time, one with being, a loving giving of ourselves, absorbed into joy, not forgetting ourselves, but truly fulfilling the significance of who we are. And you know that deeper harmony of your work with the life you want to lead. Now, the irony, researchers tell us, is that almost all of us value our leisure time over our work time. But you know where it is that most of us actually get a sense of flow, the majority of our flow in life? It's when we're working. Part of this attitude of saying work is painful, leisure time is pleasurable. It's actually in work time that most of us experience this sense of flow. And if you want to know a little bit greater flow, well, I want to turn you to one of the masters of what's called the positive psychology movement. You've heard his name the last few weeks, Martin Seligman. Martin Seligman says there's a few things that you can do to get a greater sense of flow in your life. The first is identify your signature strengths. What is it that you do really well and you love to do? Howard Thurman, who was a theologian who was a mentor to Martin Luther King Jr., really informed his great thought that transformed our nation, said, don't ask what the world needs. Don't ask what the world needs. First ask what makes you come alive, because in the end result, what the world needs is people who have come alive. Don't ask first what the world needs. First come alive, because then the world knows needs you. Second one. Choose work that lets you use these signature strengths every day. It may not be all the time. My eyes still, Chris, sorry about they glaze over when I'm given one of our financial reports, but I know i got to read it. It's not one of my strengths. Every, well, those of you who are on the management team, you know that. But you know what? I love to do that now because it's set in the context of a calling that I love. And I know having a greater sense of knowledge of those things that I don't have as much competence in allows me to know that it feeds the greater sense of something that truly is fulfilling for me. So it may not be all the time, and maybe it's in small ways, but start to use those signature strengths every day, and you will find that your job satisfaction, because your flow is rising, so is your happiness level. Recraft. This sometimes is the most challenge because we get in that groove and a groove becomes a rut really quickly. Recraft your present work to use your signature strengths more. Talk to your boss. If your boss, talk to yourself. Ask yourself, how is it that perhaps if creativity is something that's really going wanting in my life, how I can use that in very small ways? Think. Think again. If you say, oh, it's too difficult, think of the excellent housekeepers. I want you to remember that. Think about someone whose job is just to clean up after other people and no, that's not the job at all. The job is to craft a space. Think about ways that you can recraft your current position to use your signature strengths. Next. Now, key one. If you're the employer, choose employees whose signature strengths match with the work that they will do. You know, this is something all of you are employers or bosses or managers know. Set people up for success. Don't hire a non-numbers person to work with your numbers. They might be really bright and they can teach themselves how to do it, but in the end, they will not be fulfilled by it and your company, your congregation, your family will not benefit through it. And the final one, if you're a manager, make room to allow employees to recraft the work within the bounds of your goals, for the goals of the organization. There's the mountaintop, there's the orientation, That's where we want to get to. 
Go ahead and find your own way up the mountain. But make sure you're making progress. Make sure you're making progress. Martin Seligman has study tested these and field tested these and he's done social scientist research on this for decades now. These are key ways for us to experience a greater sense of flow in our working lives. Now, yes, flow is a way of working better, more productively even, more efficiently, and happier. But this is really what it comes down to. This is why we're ending today in this message series with work. Because flow is a way of living your life. All the skills that we talked about here today, all the gifts that you can use better, perhaps, in your professional or working lives, all of these things will help feed your overall sense of your life's purpose and pleasure and meaning. See, the secret of flow is about rearranging our relationship to time. Time so often stands as deadline. Time running out. The sand's running out. Don't have enough time to fit everything in. And we live in that way, a relationship to time, which is the great gift of our being alive, because we're only alive because we live in time. What happens? We get anxious. Start to say we can't do everything. Well, obviously you can't. But because you can't do anything, you start to say, well, even the some things that I can do, I'm having a tough time doing. Matthew Ricard, who is a neuroscientist and a Buddhist monk, says that the awakened being remains continuously in a state of serene, vivid, and altruistic flow. Now, I do not consider myself a truly awakened being, but I know what he's talking about. That sense of flow really does reorient ourselves to time. It's what he calls golden time. It's the opposite of leaden time. The opposite of killing time. It is filling time with the greatest of our gifts. So that actually it's like you know the, the, uh, the Einstein's relativity theory. His original thing was that when you're holding the hand of a pretty girl, it can you know, go so quick, but when you're, handing your, when you're holding your hand on a, um, on, a, uh, on a hot stove, it can seem like hours. Now, those are sort of you know, we, examples we want to turn around the other way a little bit. What we want to say is that when we're in flow, we actually fundamentally, fundamentally rearrange our relationship to the time we have in life. Time is not an absolute. Time is not a concept. It's a construct. And when we experience more flow, our time becomes more valuable. We're able to get away from fear, move away from worry, go beyond anxiety, and into a more abundant way of living our lives. We can answer this question. That's so often work put before us. What are we really doing with the gift of time that is entrusted to us? It's like the poet Mary Oliver answered the question. And she's envisioning the time of her death, when her time will be up. And she says like this, When it's over, I want to say, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was a bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over... I don't want to have to wonder if I've made something of my life particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing or arguing or angry or frightened. I don't want to end simply having been a visitor in this world. I want to step through that door full of curiosity. I want to step through that door full of curiosity. There's a great passage in the Tibetan Book of the Dead that talks about that, you know, I really like this idea of the afterlife, by the way. This would be my sort of chosen thing, but I don't think anyone can prove it, but I really, really like this idea. It's the idea that if we haven't prepared ourselves the entirety of our life, when we get to that phase of absorption into true, pure light, we will be so freaked out by it 
then we'll run scurrying back into life and be reincarnated. That's my sort of bastardized version of it, but that's essentially what it says. If we don't know eternity now, if we don't have a relationship to time right now that is healthy and full, where we have the opportunity to see eternity and eternity to welcome us home, we will say, oh, this is too scary. We have to learn to live in flow now if we will have any capability of accepting whatever, whatever is to come. See, because flow, just like Mary Oliver was writing about, it accompanies us all the way through life. So we have to say, I'm not just a visitor here. I have made myself at home in this life, at home so much that I don't even have to fear death anymore. Because this has been the life, like my friend Joe, who died on timely. This is the life we've been given. This is the life that is. And within it, time can be a blessing. Psalm 90, the beautiful pieces of poetry in the Hebrew Scriptures. The poet asks God very directly for a gift. Teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. And that's been what this entire message series has been about. How do we get hearts of wisdom filled with happiness, pleasure, and purpose? How can we have that heart of true wisdom so we can recognize our lives for what they truly are? An amazing gift in which to use Tal Ben-Shahar's words, happiness, not money, not how many people we can oppress, not how much power we have, but happiness ought to be the ultimate currency. And in that, we know a different relationship to time. No longer a threat, but something that we not busy our hands with, but something that we can really be full up with. And it leads us exactly to next week. Next week, we're over in the cafeteria, and you see those faces, those pictures, those representations of those people who you love, who you, well, we say loved and lost, but you haven't really lost them. They're still here. They're still here with us, even if they're not here with us. And you see yourself looking at them. What do you think they will ask you if they had a chance? Do you think they'll be like the ghosts in Dickens' A Christmas Carol? Probably fewer fireworks, fewer scare tactics. But you know, All Souls Day is the basis for Halloween. Unfortunately, that's we have, what we happen, what happens sometimes in our relationship with time. Is we can see the dead as a threat because we know we're going that way too. But instead, see those faces next week. See those pictures next week. And imagine yourself being asked a question by them. Not like one of Dickens' ghosts, but like this. Are you, who are still on this earth, still alive, are you getting busy living or getting busy dying? Please, they might even ask you, please get busy living fully. We who now speak from the other side, whatever that other side is, please, Take your time seriously. Take your time seriously. Live it fully. Please. Please be happy. Amen. May you be happy. May you live in blessing. Thanks for listening to this message from Wellsprings Congregation. If you'd like to find out more about us, you can reach us at wellspringsuu.org.